Okay. All right. Um, thank you for joining us for this Hagley History Hangout. I am Gregory Hargreaves, Program Officer in the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library. And uh, today I'm very pleased to be joined by Dr. Daniel Wardle London, a recent PhD in American History from New York University. Hi, Daniel. Hi there, Greg. Um, I'll just go ahead and introduce you a little bit further. Um, in addition to being a recent PhD, Daniel was also our 2019 and 2020 Louis Galambos National Fellow in Business and Politics. And the Hagley Center's Louis Galambos National Fellowship supports exceptional dissertations for which the Hagley collections constitute a significant source and that connect with the mission of the National Fellowship Program. Now, Daniel's dissertation is titled In Debt to Growth, Real Estate and the Political Economy of Public Finance in New York City, 1880 to 1943. And uh, once again, thank you for joining me, Daniel. Mm -hmm. no, it's a pleasure. All right. Um, so uh, let's start by, uh, could you introduce us to your research? Um, what is your work about? Certainly. So, you know, this project was really started over the question of how do you define growth? How do you measure the costs of growth? Mm -hmm. And I think that after uh, debates in New York City around Amazon, the second headquarters, and whether uh, New York should accept the promise of job growth at the expense of public subsidies in order to retain that growth, I was interested in historically how have American citizens tried to define and pursue uh, you know, growth on, a, on the local level and what have been the broader consequences of different interpretations or frameworks of how to get that growth. So I really pursued these questions within New York City and looked between the late 19th and mid 20th centuries over how different groups tried to define growth, how they tried to uh, promote or pursue that growth through different kinds of public policies. And I look at the physical, social, and political consequences of these different growth strategies uh, in New York City and, uh, and, and on, on other scales of governance. Well, how did planners in New York conceptualize growth over this period, and how did that change? Yeah, well, the assumption from the late 19th century up until the 1920s was that land values, uh, and particularly the selling value of land, was going to grow sort of almost indefinitely. And this was uh, a sort of assumption that was held by groups across the political spectrum. You had real estate speculators assuming this, but you also had advocates of land value taxation like Henry George saying that as long as cities are going to grow, you know, we might as well tax that growth and put it in public hands rather than in private hands. But there was still the assumption that this growth via real estate development was going to happen and that cities would make back their money if they went into debt on behalf of, let's say, transit infrastructure or providing utilities, et cetera. Um, and then the crash of you know, the 1930s happens partly because of these debts on behalf of real estate growth. And after that, there's a rethinking of what the base of urban economies are. And they begin to emphasize income and the human capital. Uh, as the source of urban growth rather than strictly land values or real estate development. And I think this shift has a lot of implications for the way cities look, uh, who gets to live in them and who gets to decide how they're run. 
And w would you say New York was representative of a uh, national process during this period? I would say so. I think that you know New York was is certainly distinct in terms of size to a certain extent, diversity, its form of governance, and also some of its forms of expenditure, such as the, the subway, most notably. But you know, more than 3,000 American cities almost went bankrupt during the 1930s, uh, and New York was almost one of those. Uh, so, you know, the sort of broader fiscal history of New York is not that different from other places, uh, you know, Chicago, Cleveland, et cetera. I think that um, especially now, you know, the debates that are happening in New York around gentrification and post-industrial cities, et cetera, you know, this is a story that we're seeing in San Francisco, in Boston, and many other places. So, you know, New York is certainly in line, I think, with a lot of these changes. And I think there's a lot to learn from how it is trying to resolve them and how it has tried to resolve them in the past. What was it about Hagley that attracted you to um, use the collections to advance this research? Well, I think that, you know, the Hagley Library has just an incredible source of uh, economic thinking, li literature around economic thought and theory going back to the late 19th century, at least as relevant to my project. I think um, being able to just drop into the stacks and to uh, bring in different theories around tax assessment, debt policy, uh, real estate appraisal, and, you know, having that you know, at arms, at, uh, you know, within gr easy grasp, that was of indefinite help to this project. And I think the seminar series and the intellectual community that's formed around the Hagley just enables me to easily receive feedback on my ideas, to think about collaborations and intersections with other scholars' work. And, you know, I really don't think this project could have been completed uh, with as much quality or as, with as much uh, speed uh, if I hadn't been at the Hagley. Um, but yeah, the, the resources and the intellectual community were certainly there. And also the surroundings, which I could go into uh, <laughs> for another more, more if you'd prefer. It, it is a bucolic, uh, yes. <laughs> even, um, which is surprising given its industrial heritage. Mm -hmm. Well, um, so was it primarily then secondary material that was most useful uh, in the Hagley collections? Um, I would say so. I think I had already uh, identified a lot of archives that I think I consulted about 21 archives over the course of this project. And I had drawn from a lot of local government sources, private worried that Hagley's collections, primary collections would be too valuable or too, uh, it would it would lead me into all kinds of other wonderful projects, which I would prefer to save for my second book, perhaps. So, you know, I sort of deliberately, and it was difficult, but I refrained from looking too much at the primary sources. But I know just from some brief glances at the finding aids that there is a lot of great stuff there. And I hope as I turn this project into a manuscript, uh, I'll be able to return and, you know, pick up what I was able to uh, examine. Sure. Uh, that's actually on my list of questions, so I may as well segue right into that, um, uh, although it might jump the gun slightly. Uh, what materials at Hagley did oh, you sorry, wish you were able out to a use? Little. Oh, okay. Uh, can you hear me now? 
Yes, I can. Sorry. Okay, uh, it's no problem. Uh, what? Uh, um, it's all right. We'll come back to that in just momentarily. Um, uh, what? When you're digging around in the stacks, what's either surprised or excited you? What did you find um, and think? Wow, this 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 is something I really need to use. And perhaps yeah, elaborate well, on how you used it. Yeah, well, that's a good question. I think um, Lewis Mumford had a couple of writings um, in his book, The Culture of Cities, that was available in the stacks. And he talks about how during the 1930s, um, the, we were sort of familiar with the WPA and the idea that the federal government was providing playgrounds, hospitals, schools, other kinds of civic infrastructure. And local governments were not able to do that before, partly because land was so expensive. And it was so expensive because cities wanted it to be that way, because they wanted to get the tax revenue that would come from expensive land. So even though fiscally cities were benefiting from expensive land, socially they were unable to, that, that very high price prevented cities from providing needed infrastructure and services. So Lewis Mumford has this great line where he basically said, we shouldn't talk about the perils of urban decline, but the perils of urban growth, because overheated growth is going to prevent cities from doing the things they need for their citizens. And there's this sort of vicious circle where cities need the revenue to pay for services, but to get that revenue, they make providing those services almost fiscally prohibitive. It, um, so this was this great quote, and he has a great series of analyses on that. And uh, I had, you know, I knew about Mumford before this project, but to be able to look at his writings in this book and in some other associated uh, edited volumes around him and his uh, regional plan association, I mean, it really helped develop this line of argument. Uh, and so I'm really happy to have been able to access it and draw from that collection. Well, it sounds like the 1930s then were really pivotal in your story in numerous ways. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, the 20s and the 30s are the real hinge here for my project. Well, then could you perhaps, for those of us unfamiliar with this subject, um, sketch what you found about New York City's uh, fiscal policies and uh, state of fiscal health, um, perhaps prior to this hinge period and um, then afterward? Yeah. Well, New York had experienced a fiscal crisis or close to a fiscal crisis almost every 20 years from the 1870s up until the 1930s. And a lot of that crisis was not due to over generous welfare spending or the flight of taxpayers, which is how we associate why urban fiscal crises happen today. Instead, it's because of public debts on behalf of real estate expansion. And that can take the form of transit infrastructure, or it could take the form of, um, uh, you know, expensive services that are supporting certain areas of the city uh, that aren't actually paying back. There's not a return of investment on those kind of services. So in the 1920s, this reaches a peak where New York is building rapidly its rapid transit system. Its outer boroughs in particular are growing, you know, by hundreds of thousands of people. But the central city, uh, Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, are losing population. And these outer boroughs that are growing, that are mostly taking the form of single family subdivisions, 
they can't pay their own way. They're not paying the way for the services they're receiving. So instead, the city has to levy higher taxes on the older districts. And if you're a landlord and you're getting taxed higher, you either need to increase your rents or you need to sell out to someone who will build a higher and denser building in order to pay back the, the taxes. So there's this interesting kind of circle again where the more the city grows horizontally, that horizontal growth is only financed by the vertical growth of other districts and the displacement of a lot of the older working class communities there. So this was the sort of paradigm that was shaping the city's growth, particularly in the 20s. In the 1930s, after the crash, there's this shift in economic theory, like I mentioned, shifting from land values to income. And no longer do a lot of public finance experts think that cities can make back their investments just by building transit into a peripheral area and hoping if you build it, they will come. Instead, they are emphasizing high income individuals or high income occupations or jobs as the things they want to attract and retain. So, um, you know, after the 30s, there's this shift there. And, you know, the political valence of this is interesting because um, on the one hand, you could say, well, maybe we should get this added income through upward mobility from a city's existing population. That's one way of doing it. Um, but another way is simply to you know, hope that outside investors or outside people will come in and save your city. And, you know, that's sort of the paradigm that we're used to. I mean, this is the Bloomberg doctrine where, you know, you hope that billionaires will move to your city because they will pay for the welfare services or social services that other people rely on. But, you know, what I hope that my project reveals is um, it's a gamble. You know, any form of economic growth is a gamble. It's a speculation on the public sector's part. And it's rare that we really trace whether those investments work out and what the hidden consequences of them are. What might be some of the implications of that finding? Well, it's, I think, you know, small bets are usually a good idea, I think. Um, you don't want to, you know, build a stadium and hope everything will turn out right in the end. I think that is now sort of a more common understanding for a lot of urban e urban economic theorists. I think um, what's, what's interesting to me is how can you generate uh, virtuous circles among economic, through economic growth among a city's existing population? You know, how can you create a working class, a, an economy that's friendly to working class people that can also sustain a local economy. And I think there's a lot of interesting approaches being done around this now where you're thinking of labor co-ops, you're thinking of publicly owned utilities or publicly owned land as a means of raising revenue. You're thinking of um, ways of better procurement policies where cities are offering contracts to local businesses rather than outside folks. So, you know, there are all these different approaches. I mean, I think historically it's, it's tough to draw any clear lessons from what I find from the 1920s or 30s, you know, city, city economies don't look like they used to, but I mean, we've seen after 2008 that these dangers of assuming that this time is different, that the boom will always last, uh, 
you know, we're still municipal governments are still prone to uh, sort of betting the horse on further economic growth in the form of real estate and land values. And that's one of the things that's interesting since the 80s is that, you know, the real estate economy is more financialized now than it's been in quite a while. And uh, we're in danger of repeating, I think, pretty directly some of the mistakes of the 1920s. And in this case, it's not just a local economy that's going to collapse. It's the too big to fail paradox, right? Where, you know, how, how can you get out of an economic system where it seems there's no alternative but to feed the beast more, right? So, yeah, I think the lesson is you need to have contingencies and you need to really start with the human capital and businesses that are already within a metropolis rather than trying to outsource economic growth to, you know, an, an outside actor who's able to pick and choose, you know, the next time they feel they're not getting a good deal. I wanted to come back to the Hagley collections and you had mentioned having had to limit your interest in some <laughs> things so you could focus on the dissertation, which yeah. I think any researcher can appreciate. Um, <laughs> but could you perhaps uh, refer to uh, a collection or a set of documents that you'd like to come back and use um, that you wished you could use this time around? Oh, that that's a good question. Um, let me see. I think, you know, I, I have to admit I didn't really uh, write down a full list of the different collections. I remember being brought through them early on and I just uh, was overwhelmed. I think that um, I don't know. I think I would love to. I would love to answer that question, uh, having gone through again my list of different Hagley collections. Uh, sure, no worries. Sorry about that. Uh, it's quite all right. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There's uh, just uh, an astonishing variety, yeah. a depth and breadth of collections that can be used in a remarkable um, variety of ways. Absolutely. And that's great. Um, well, uh, just one last question for you. Um, as our uh, Galambos Fellow, uh, National Fellow for the year, uh, I'd like to know uh, how and whether um, your experience with the fellowship contributed to your professional development. Absolutely. I think um, being able to take part in the seminar series over the course of the fall and spring, both as a presenter and also as just a participant and commentator, I think, it immersed me in a way of thinking critically and generously about other people's work, about my work, in a way that you don't get in the grad school, in a typical grad school career of uh, being in a, you know, the sort of hot house of a grad seminar or dissertation workshop. I think being able to think more expansively about my work in light of um, the different readers, the different commentators, the different participants. I mean, it was really a gift. I have to say it was one of the highlights of my year uh, was easily when I had a chance to meet with Louis Galambos uh, himself and um, sort of get uh, feedback from him. I, since then, I've been in email correspondence. He's offered to uh, take some of my papers out to John Hopkins for further seminars. I think, um, the, you know, just beyond being able to make a better dissertation, just 
again, the intellectual community at the Hagley really makes me think of myself more as within a community of scholars in a way that I wouldn't if I was, ironically, I, yeah, I felt m less alone uh, working on this project than I think I would have if I was in New York, but within the usual circle of uh, desperate uh, grad students. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, I couldn't agree more. We work quite hard to, to cultivate that sense of intellectual yeah. and scholarship, uh, community of scholarship. Um, and we're quite lucky that um, the Hagley Collections and the Hagley Center intersects with numerous uh, vibrant um, subfields, including business history, history of technology, um, and, and many others. So you, you're right. Um, where all those things overlap is, is right where we sit. Yeah, yeah. No, and I mean, of course, just the opportunity to meet of with other scholars who are residing with me at the blacksmith shop uh, and getting a chance to hear about their work. Speaking with Roger Horowitz, of course, is always a pleasure. Um, Carol Lockman. Um, I have to also say um, the, uh, hold on, the, um, yeah. Being able to order material from the library uh, through uh, Linda Gross, who was, I have to again, thank her so much. I know that I gave her a lot of re requests through interlibrary loan, but I have to say, I mean, the staff of the Hagley, I really have to thank so much for welcoming me and putting up with me and uh, helping make this just a wonderful experience. And I am 100% ready to welcome and uh, encourage other people to take to visit the Hagley for a day or for several months, depending on their, uh, their, their package. Their, their research agenda. Yeah. Right. Well, thank, thank you so much for saying that. Um, and uh, you're more than welcome. And thank you so much for uh, sitting down to speak with me today. It was really a pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, I hope we'll be able to uh, meet again at um, at the, oh, I forget the name now, the coffee shop. Uh, Brouhaha. Ah, at Brouhaha, yes. <laughs> Very I good. miss that place, but yeah, <laughs> hope to see you there again in the near future. That, that would be great. Wonderful. All right, we'll, we'll take care. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Oh, thank you. Have a good one. You too.